0: Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux. Hope you're doing well. We're here with Dr. Rick Mehta. He's a free speech advocate and an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at Acadia University in Wolfville, Nova Scotia, Canada. You can check out his Twitter at twitter.com forward slash Rick R Mehta. That's R-E-C-K-R-M-E-H-T-A. Dr. Mehta, thank you so much for taking the time today.
1: Oh, my pleasure.
0: So once more, under the ramparts, we free speech advocates go. Uh, We had a pretty good run of it there in the sort of 80s and 90s, and it seems like things have changed quite a bit. And in one of your talks, which we'll put a link to below, you talk about some of the shifts that uh, even you've seen since you were in undergraduate to where you are now.
1: Yeah, I guess because I started in 89, and I believe that was probably just as the um, university system was starting to get very... Politicized, so it's uh, yeah. So I really didn't notice anything was really wrong until around 2015, I think. And it didn't help that I'd only been I'd only spent one year um, not work, not being in the um, university systems, you know. And and it was just a year after I graduated, and uh, my, all of my all of my applications to grad school had been rejected. So for there's that one year that I actually got to see what the real world was like, but for most life. Most of my life has been sort of the insulated academic. So I'm glad that I did wake up and notice what was happening. But I think for so many, they just don't because they're just, yeah, leading a life where they're in a bubble. And there does seem to be this progress of the left. And it probably is true
0: when the left is um, uh, where the right is and the right is where the left is in the past. But it seems like there's this kind of progression. Let me know what you think. It goes something like this. When the left is trying to get in – They say that they're really, really into diversity and you should not be so close-minded and you should accept their arguments and they kind of broach the moat, so to speak, by claiming diversity. But then when they get in, that diversity moat seems to get pulled up pretty quickly. And then they're open to every race, ethnicity and gender as long as they're all leftists. And that uh, inclusiveness does not seem to expand to include people who aren't on the left. And so once they take over the castle, the ramparts come up and suddenly diversity doesn't seem to be quite as much of a priority in the genuine diversity sense rather than the you know race and gender stuff.
1: Yeah, it's... um. <clears throat> It's all very Orwellian. I mean, yeah, it just seems like all those works that I read of Orwell when I was in high school, um, you know, were far more applicable than I had dreamt, I guess, because we were in that high school system at that time. We kept having those issues uh, reinforced. So those were always on our radar. And I think we just took it for granted, our freedoms for granted. But uh, from what I can tell over. Yeah, I think since 2003, I think that was around the time I remember there was a big news item about To Kill a Mockingbird being racist, and I think that was removed from the curriculum. And then I didn't really pay too much attention, but uh, looking at what the students are like now when they come in, it doesn't seem that they even know about those great classics works of literature that emphasized our freedoms and how we can use language both to to clarify but also to uh, to hide our meanings. And so all of those issues that I took for granted as a student, the students coming in don't have that. So it seems their literacy skills have gone down, their numeracy skills. So both from the reading and being able to process numbers, which is what we need, given that our world is probabilistic, we have to be able to think in terms of probabilities. So those two skills are, are have gone. And then sort of the general life skills, how, like how to cope, how to cook, do your taxes. Those have all gone by the wayside. Between
0: your room, as another famous Canadian keeps reminding us.
1: Yeah, uh, okay. I, I haven't followed that, that advice. So that's why I'm keeping my <laughs> mouth shut on that one. Um, but my excuse is I have a dragon at my door <laughs> and I'm sticking to that one. Right, right. Uh, but yeah, so, and then, yeah, just the general uh, coping, resilience, um, knowledge about just general world affairs. So it just, so I'm not sure what skill set they're coming in. And I think the lack of stimulation then is being made up for by the constant texting and having to go on their cell phones. The symptoms look, to me, very similar to that of what ADHD would look like, where you need to have the constant stimulation just to maintain your nervous system at an optimal level.
0: Oh, yeah. No, the hyperstimulation of modern text media and, and cell phone media is quite extraordinary. And the thing that's so frustrating about young people, oh, Boy, have I ever crossed that threshold in the middle age now. Those young people, he said, adjusting his suspenders. But the thing that's frustrating about young people, and this I would expand to include people who are ideological, is that, you know, when you're driving home, once you get home, you stop driving because you're there. And if you have an ideology that provides you the answers to big, complex, challenging social problems, then you stop looking for answers, because, well, you already have the answer. I don't spend a lot of time examining whether the uh, Earth is the center of the solar system, because I think that's pretty much been answered. And the problem with the ideology, you know, we have big challenges uh, or or discrepancies in groups, right? Discrepancies between ethnicities and races. We have discrepancies, discrepancies in outcome between men and women, These are all fascinating questions and questions which we should defer to science and to uh, philosophy and so on. But we have this ideology in the West in particular that says, well, if there's any discrepancy between any groups, it must be the result of bigotry. And of course, if you have that answer and you believe that answer with all of your empty, fervent little leftist heart, then you're going to stop looking for new answers. And in fact, you're going to view anyone who provides alternate explanations as an immoral enabler and justifier. Of bigotry and sexism and racism and so on and that to me i mean trying to be an educator in this context when people are arrogant with answers that don't really stand the test of science must be extraordinarily frustrating at times although magnificent when you can break through
1: uh definitely yeah i noticed um yeah this past year just when with the teaching i mean i had um i hadn't taught the second half of the introductory psychology since 2006 um So it had been a while and back then I had my biases and so it was kind of interesting to look at the literature fresh and realizing that some of what I taught before actually was wrong in terms of uh, role of genetics. I thought no it must be all environment and then looking at the new latest literature I had no choice but to go with uh, the findings and that's what I presented in class but a lot of people were not uh, happy. What I found interesting was the the lack of connection. So some students when I showed them that the role of Heredity actually seems to increase with age and show them data they thought is fascinating and then it would be obvious. But then when I put that into the context of sex differences, or I prefer to say cultural differences instead of race differences in intelligence, then suddenly you're, you know, oh, yeah, the uproar that it caused was unlike anything I'd um, expected. Oh, genetics
0: is one of these astonishing fiery moats that people – like, it's like the bridge of death in the old Monty Python movie, you know. They, they, people are yes. like quail before it. And I think because we all wanted differences to be environmental. Because it would be nice if different ethnicities and, and different genders and so on ended up roughly in the same place. But the fact that they don't, we'd love to think that it's environmental 100% because then we can change it and we can alter things. And this is the new Soviet man. And we can just reinvent humanity as if profit motives don't matter and human beings don't respond to incentives and so on. But this genetics uh, is is a real challenge because it does push us up against the limits of our vanity in everything that we can change in society. And learning to accept what you can't change is really the basis of adult wisdom. But it seems really, really tough for us to grapple. And let's just talk about the gender stuff uh, at the moment. Uh, What have you found over the last little while with regards to gender differences that you would say probably can't be changed by tweaking environment too much?
1: Um... I guess, I guess just the natural skill set. I think we just boor, are born with um, being able to do different skills, but there are going to be exceptions. So I I find it in, an interesting topic because I am one of the exceptions. So uh, my mother is the one, for example, who's all, who always the one about go, you know, work hard, earn the big bucks. Uh, she was the one who did the um, you know, worked as a, a computer analyst and so it's very mathematical and could do those kinds of skills. I can't do that to save my life. And I'm the one who's happy, you know, I, I, I you know, from the, when it came to salaries, I feel like, oh, okay, I've reached, you know, uh, the point that I've, you know, I'm earning what I think I deserve for my role in society. I don't want to have more than my fair share. And so I'm comfortable with that. I, you know, I was the one who originally was more interested in a career in, you know, like nursing um, you know, the sort of the more people-oriented fields, whereas my mother is the one who's great with working with things and didn't really want to be with people. So so I mean, so I mean, I just see it as if I can accept that there are individual differences, I don't I don't really fit with the bell curve, then yeah, I just don't see why others can't just yeah, just because I know there's that trade-off. If you're better at verbal skills, you're gonna not be quite so good at the math and vice versa. So just accept that. We all have different abilities and go with what's your talent. And I don't see what the big deal is to make, you know, why we have to have the world in a certain way. And unfortunately, I think the ones who have taken up in academia are ones who uh, have a certain cause that they're willing that they they want to see the world in a certain way. And uh, they're determined to implement that, whether society wants that or not.
0: Well, of course, there is a base material gain. To be achieved. So if you are in a group that doesn't make as much money as, say, you know, the the East Asians or the Ashkenazi Jews, who's sort of the top of the economic ladder, if you can convince everyone that the reason you make less money is because there's a horrible injustice going on and the government should use its power to transfer resources from the more successful groups to your group – well, there's quite a financial incentive in that. And quite often it seems like where there's a giant financial incentive uh, and, and a sort of power shift available, ideology kind of sneaks up and covers it uh, with sort of some sort of ideological purity test rather than say, well, you know, I could get some free stuff here if I complain about this loudly enough and deny any alternative explanations. It may be just as simple as, again, human beings are profit-driven, respond to incentives. And this is just a way to get resources.
1: Yeah, I would. um, I think another context we could put that in is the sudden push for mental health uh, resources. So, suddenly, you know, because there's the mental health epidemic of people not, uh, you know, unfortunately, there are many who actually do have uh, genuine conditions that need to be treated, like post traumatic stress disorder, anxiety. But uh, now I'm noticing a trend that that now we're trying to put uh, everything in terms of a pathology. So, with one interview that I did with, um, with a colleague and interviewing a grad student, uh, the potential grad student was talking about um, in the field of neuropsychology, just um, all these issues of trauma that happen in childhood as if trauma is a normal part of ch- uh, childhood. And that to me seemed very strange because, you know, when we think of the world, uh, the word trauma, we think of something very serious. Um, and that and it should be something that's rare. And we go to extreme lengths to protect that. You know, that's why we get our children to wear uh, the bike helmets, which you know we didn't do as kids, those kinds of things. So the idea is to prevent the trauma. But then on the other hand, we're trying to have some kind of index of it. Um, yeah, and which I see it as normalizing something that we should see as a pathological as something that we should be trying to keep to a minimum. Right.
0: Now, you've talked a lot about the science of psychology and where it stands in relation to a lot of sort of leftist conjectures because, you know, I'm sure everyone knows this is generally the way that science is supposed to work is you come up with a hypothesis called microaggressions or or rape culture or a gender wage gap or something like that. Okay, there's your hypothesis. And then you say, okay, well, it's explainable by this, this and this. And then, of course, what you should do is subject it to rigorous analysis of data, and you should try and um, figure out if there are any co-joining factors or any other explanation which could uh, give rise to reasons why this could be happening and so on. It seems like there's a bit of a skip, like they come up with a hypothesis, and then it's just true, and anyone who disagrees with them is fundamentally a Nazi. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but not a huge amount. And that process of submitting – a hypothesis to rigorous examination of data and alternative explanations seems to not be occurring with a lot of this stuff. And you've talked to her quite a bit about how things like microaggressions and other sort of leftist tropes have been examined by the discipline of psychology and have been found fairly wanting.
1: Oh well, yeah, if, um, yeah. The, the I know for microaggressions for sure. There's the, um, the article by uh, Scott Lillianfeld, and he. Basically, yeah, says that it can't be used at this this time because it's completely untestable. There's no nothing you can do to to test it. And I yeah, I, I remember learning about that as a student because you know I have of um, course brown skin East Indian heritage, and I never perceived myself as having much racism. I mean, people are always a bit uncivil, but nothing that I would consider you know something systemic. But it was in my classes that they were teaching us. Oh well, there's this whole concept of the microaggressions and that you see it as someone asks you oh well what country are you from and, and but but i never i never perceive that as being a racist uh, comment addressed to me but somehow that's something they've been teaching for a number of years just you know fairly innocent question or if you speak with an accent or whatever that somehow Trust me, that's I, I
0: get that question all the time but i don't think it's racism it's just like hey you've got a really fruity accent so where's that from exactly Now, also, there has been some pushback from psychological uh, disciplines about the concept of implicit bias or unconscious bias and stereotypes and so on.
1: Uh, Yeah, definitely. There have been a few that have been speaking out, but it has been quite um, heavily politicized. I don't think it helps when you, like, you know, I stop being a member of the American Psychological Association because... Uh, their own magazine would talk about their work with groups like Black Lives Matter. So instead of maybe just studying, looking at the perspective and see how it maybe adds or or detracts from the the big bigger puzzle, they're now uh, you know involved with those groups. And so once you do that, it's like the way I see it, it's like the undercover uh, police officer who joins you know whatever group, uh, but then loses all perspective and becomes part of the gang. It's and I think that's what happened with psychology when. We instead of just looking at their interpretation, their were the world, and trying to incorporate and see how it fits in the bigger picture, uh, we've uh, to a large extent adapted um, those perspectives. And yeah, that makes that yeah. I think that's put psychology in a particularly uh, precarious situation. And it hasn't helped that uh, yeah, the field like the social neuroscience now, where they try to put the implicit bias in the context of let's say an fMRI study or. Doing um, event-related potentials to talk about how there could be a biological basis, but then they often don't include the necessary controls. So let's say black on black, which is what you'd need if you're going to do, you know, you know, white versus black. So those kind of ones aren't there, and I think we know that even when blacks, uh, black people, look at uh, pictures um, of uh, black versus white, they'll tend to, on average, rate the black one faces, let's say, as being more dangerous. So it seems to be some across the board that's probably genetically built in. And I think that by not including those controls, uh, we're actually moving away from the truth, and it actually is going to cause more harm than good.
0: Well, I'm just thinking about blacks reacting to black faces as being more dangerous. Looking at the shooting statistics coming out of places like Chicago, uh, I can see why they may have that particular perspective. Uh, and not being able to start from the facts is always really frustrating. And for the younger people as well, you you've mentioned this as well i'd like to get your perspective on this for the younger people as well there's this fundamental i don't know is hysteria too strong a term you let me know what what you but when they come across opposing ideas that are robust that are that are you know not just some random opinion you know like some troll opinion and so on but you know here's some reasoned arguments here's some evidence here's some data here's some genetics and so on there is this it's more than a deer in the headlights which would signify kind of intellectual paralysis it's more of a I don't know, it's like that old quote from the Nazi, you know, when I hear the word culture, I take off the safety on my revolver, you know, it's like when I hear opposing ideas, I'm going to escalate until those opposing ideas go away. And that to me is not, it's not robust, you should be able to entertain an opposing idea, even an idea you find offensive, to understand the roots and the argumentation behind it so that you can more effectively dismantle it. But it's almost like um, a, a, a fundamentalist religious relationship to a demon. You can't let the demon in. It will possess you. It will take you over. You'll have no free will anymore. And uh, like vampires, you have to invite them in your home and then they suck your blood and bite your head off or something. I don't know. I'm not an expert in vampires. But this idea that even to entertain or have in your vicinity an idea that you consider offensive, that that is so wrong. That seems so fragile and so non-robust that uh, I don't know how you can really learn anything in that context. Why go to school if it's just to affirm everything you already believe?
1: Uh, yeah, and actually, did uh, at one point. Fortunately, my recorder wasn't working that day, but that was finally uh, I, I gotten. I gotten frustrated in my class, and I did say say that because uh, with my uh, with the course, I you know after the first time when people got upset, I did a, a debrief. I did a second debrief at a, another point in the course, and then I, I did what else did I? Do? I reorganized the topic. so I put the stress and health before social psychology and talked about the idea of safe spaces and how there's no evidence for it, and then gave the argument that if you go through just what's even in a textbook uh, and you're going in with the notion of the world being a safe place, then what's going to happen is you're going to have an exaggerated stress response, and that's going to actually cause you more harm. Uh, both in the short term now, but then also when you go into the real world where people are going to disagree with you. So I'd gone through all that. And then even then, when I got to the social psychology unit, I went to the section on cognitive dissonance. And um, for a change of pace, uh, I used a clip by, um, it was either, yeah, I think, yeah, Antonia Okafor. So just kind of showing, like she showed went into her story, of how she was someone who had voted for Obama twice and then switched, uh, um, you know, uh, switch her point of view, and so I kind of got got the idea that uh, if you're using that approach of just calling people's names and whatnot, saying they're racist, could it actually do the opposite from what you're intending, where they'll actually go more of the opposite way, and so they seemed to reason with that. Just the idea, I thought, maybe that our own actions could actually be driving other people away from our point of view. Um, then I proceeded with a course and then later on when I was showing a video, um, yeah, like, yeah, I remember that there were people walking out, some students, one student even said next time talk about psychology. Uh, yeah, at another point, too, there were multiple points afterwards where students were just walking out just because I was presenting an idea they didn't necessarily feel comfortable with. So finally at one point I just said, you know, what, there's, why is this still happening? I asked about that and, Said that the behavior that I was observing from some people in the room was very similar to that, like the like the like that of uh, cult members, and <laughs> just did say you're very prone to being um, getting this going down the same kind of path as, let's say, people in the Jonestown massacre, where you're just a slave to whatever others peoples tell you to do. I mean, that's one possible outcome. And afterwards, I thought that could be also the uh, the root of evil. I haven't read uh, read Ordinary Men yet, but I think. That was the mindset, though, behind um, the soldiers who did these horrible atrocities.
0: Well, this is the big fear, I think, and challenge about higher education, because higher education in the past, when only about 10% of people went into higher education, it was kind of the intellectual elite, and you, they could usually handle this kind of stuff. I mean, when I went to, I went to three, three Canadian universities, and the National Theatre School, but that's not particularly relevant unless you need me to do some Shakespeare. But uh, at at uh, Glendon College, part of York University, at uh, McGill, and at the University of Toronto, I was on the debating team in particular and and traveled around Canada doing debates. And the devil's advocate position was something that you were fully expected to inhabit and to exemplify. So you would have some position and you would flip a coin, and you either take the pro or you take the con position. And you had to find a convincing way to argue for something, even if you found it to be personally offensive. And this is the mark of an educated person, all the way back to Aristotle, the ability to entertain an idea and to explore an idea without accepting the moral validity of that idea. And that really seems to have fallen away. And now I think the concern is you talk about students who are complaining that they're only allowed to cite feminist sources when talking about the gender wage gap. Now, there's lots of criticisms of the gender wage gap. I put some on this channel, had some experts in to talk about it. But the idea that you would pay Directly and indirectly, you know fifty seventy five thousand dollars a year in terms of your tuition and your lost income and all that in order to do what well, it should be to challenge you and teach you new things and teach you things that you wouldn't have come across uh, before and and learn how to argue against. Uh, things and and learn that you're not always right. Because why do you keep learning things? Well, because you're not always right and there's always more to learn. But the idea is like, well, you're going to pay all this money and you're going to sit in this classroom and you're only going to be allowed to use particular sources that affirm what the teacher is already telling you. Boy, that is straight up indoctrination. I'm going to call a spade a spade. That is straight up indoctrination and very much the opposite of the kind of education that I received not just a couple of decades ago.
1: No, uh, same here. And this year was uh, unusual in that this was the first time I'd ever had students say, I want you to just stick to the textbook. (laughs) Usually people always used to like it, uh, you know, when I go and use maybe the the book as a base so that we have some structure to the course, but then expand on some ideas or present other perspectives. And usually that was something that was, that, you know, students really liked about my teaching. But this year was the first time ever where... Yeah, they said, you know, just stick to what's in the book. I just want the book read to me. That was bizarre. Have you
0: traced the genealogy of how this fragility ends up arriving in your classroom? I mean, it must start pretty early. It must start uh, through stuff that kids are getting in primary school, junior high and high school. Have you done any kind of deep dive into how people end up so relatively fragile and untutored uh, in wisdom when they arrive in your
1: classroom? Well, I think this has been probably years in the making, uh, we had the self-esteem movement. And I thought that that had uh, died down, but I guess it's just been in uh, force just at a lower volume. So if you kind of think a low volume but uh, prolonged, that can have quite the effect. Um, So if you have that in the elementary and high school system where you can't uh, fail a student, even if they hadn't had nothing in, uh, we want to make sure that their self-esteem is always... um, maintained even if there's no evidence for it. So that has been something uh, long in the making. Um, Yeah, and then combine that with the fact that the curriculum doesn't actually, has lost its rigor. So, you know, the discovery math, I think that they're using these days as opposed to just straightforward, you know, memorize that um, multiplication table. I mean, I remember it was frustrating as a child because I couldn't do math, but I mean, even I was eventually able to do it and I'm I'm really bad at math. Uh, So, yeah, a lot of the the rigor has um, has disappeared uh, or has gone by the wayside. So I'm not even sure what they're actually learning. And but if you go to the teacher union website, these days are actually quite open about it. That's, you know, I think grade five somehow in phys ed, they're going to work in white privilege. So it's like the social justice is actually being implemented in place of curriculum. And this is at the elementary and high school levels. And so now instead of the universities being the place where you say, OK, let's enough of that nonsense, here's a fresh start, is that now the universities, it seems, are now uh, saying, no, we want to make sure this is the way that it's going to be. So we're going to make guarantee that, you know, if you had any inkling of coming in as an educated person, you know, who can think freely and independently, now let's just make sure we get rid of that. At least that's the impression the way I'm seeing it.
0: Oh, I get uh, so many tortured calls in my call-in show from young people who were like, well, I don't agree with the professor, but I don't trust the professor to mark me fairly if I disagree with her or him. And it really is tortured because then the question is, well, what am I doing here? Am I here just to spend a lot of money, to be afraid and nervous and deny my natural intellectual curiosity, in order to conform with the perspectives of somebody I genuinely don't respect. Ooh, that's a that's a tough sale. But I need that hoop. I need that piece of paper to go get my good job and that kind of stuff. It is really, really tough for the young, the intellectually curious, and you know, we, we've talked a little bit more about non-leftist topics, but it can be pretty tough for the traditional left as well. And uh, that can be, uh, oh man, it's it's rough. It's rough. And do you find? when you teach Dr. Meta that you are able to break through to to some of these students that they kind of shake off, uh, you know, I guess uh, Kant's dogmatic slumber that he awoke from his dogmatic slumber. Uh, are you able to sort of send the blaring alarm of reason and evidence into the minds of people and awake from wake them from that kind of dogmatic slumber? What kind of ratio perspective or percentage are we talking about?
1: Well, if I just use my overall instructor ratings as um as a proxy I've never yeah I guess because I've never seen uh, my ratings that polarized so it's um, it's almost like it was 40 percent of students giving me fours and fives another 40 percent gave me ones and twos and only about 20 percent in the middle so I was reaching some uh, but they're also the ones who are going to be quiet about it because it can be intimidating Mm. Um, yeah when you have people who are screaming in your face so it was interesting looking at the comments because some of the comments were, what did you not like about the class? It was like, oh, well, my fellow students who had to be make everything into a drama as if it was all about them. So there was some of those. And then, yeah, on the other hand, you know, some who had to write down me too as a comment as if I was going to take that as being meaningful. When I mean, I'd spoken out about that in class and just called it a mob rule. So I don't know what they were hoping to achieve by putting that in my comments.
0: <laughs> I'm not sure that they're hoping to achieve anything other than confirmation bias. Now, the other thing I think that's happening, because there's there's the experts, right, psychologists, psychological associations, and so on, and this occurs in a wide variety of fields, but of course we'll just talk about psychology for the most part. So there are psychologists who take a lot of government money for the most part, and they produce a lot of very interesting research and materials, and They are then supposed to, at least I think it's ideal, that they percolate their arguments and ideas out to the general population because, you know, they're taking a lot of tax money and so they should, I think, provide value back to the group who is uh, funding them. But I think something's happening and it really has occurred from the rise of the internet onwards, which is there is a great deal of discrediting, I think, for cadres of experts for the professionals because something like the wage gap, you know, lots of academics will talk about it and then people will find out that... There are very strong. In fact, I view them as decisive counter arguments to that. Or people won't talk about what you want to refer to as, as culture and IQ or ethnicity and, and IQ differences. And they'll say, well, this all gets shouted down. And then they do the research and they find out, well, no, there is some real data behind that. And it is explanatory. And it is not something that can be easily dismissed and so on. And then what, what happens is people throw the baby out with the bathwater and they say, well, if there's this level of obfuscation and misdirection and sophistry occurring in the stuff that I've studied, what else are these people saying that is politically correct but not empirically supportable? And then there is this great turn away from the experts. Uh, and um, I think that sets people a lot adrift in society, which is a real shame.
1: Uh, no, I agree. Like I guess when I started at um, a K back in 2003, it seemed like there were a few psychologists uh, speaking about the field and I guess the and I always seem strange to me that uh, physicists you know they've actually I think solved some of their big problems and they can explain their material a- in very plain language to the general public but that like psychology never seemed to be able to and you try to read the psychological literature and oftentimes the the journals are just needlessly dense and okay. they'll make an issue of you know, that's well, they're trying that. to keep the, the educated lay people
0: away. It's like the matin last in the in, in the Middle Ages. We can't have the the Bible in
1: the vernacular.
0: People will think for themselves.
1: Yeah. So for the longest time, that's what uh, seemed to be happening, and um, yeah. So and you think of any of any field, the psychology would be the one that could communicate is finding readily to the general public, but there seemed to be uh, very little of that, and uh, now it seems like psychology is just um, it's gone from being a science uh, now to the most part to just becoming an, uh, an ideology now instead of an objective science. I don't know how it can claim uh, to, to have uh, credibility. If we can actually get through this, um, this period, it's going ha- I think our field is going to have a rough time earning the respect of the general public.
0: Well, and I think it's courting the contempt of the general public because a lack of respect is when you become indifferent. But when you think that people may actively be working against the values you treasure, then I think contempt may be the appropriate response. And you've talked about this. uh, If you could expand on this, I find that fascinating, that researchers are not only avoiding topics, but also are not allowed to talk to the media, to talk to the general public without going through their their faculty uh, uh, executives sometimes. What is going on to the point where people are like, well, I could have a career or I could study gender differences? Uh, and, and it's like, man, the most essential questions that are constantly being talked about the most are being bereft of expertise because people are fearing for their careers or their relations with their, um, with their fellow academics. I mean, I think of um, the uh, professor at the University of uh, Waterloo who uh, died recently a couple of years ago, who was studying, uh, Phil, uh, Dr. Philippe Rushton, who was studying race and IQ differences. Man, he had a very, very tough time of it professionally and with his colleagues and so on. And boy, that is a real um, a blow to the kind of uh, open inquiry that does help society progress.
1: Yeah, well, I remember, yeah, because, yeah, that was just when I was in high school. I remember when in 1989, when the premier of Ontario had demanded his resignation, and the university did um, fight for him. But yeah, unfortunately, yeah, I never learned to. Corrupt. It was only in recent years that I really, I think, math have gotten a really good hang of thinking critically. So I just accepted the claims. Oh well, his research is funded by white supremacy groups, et cetera, without ever actually checking into that. So yeah, and um, yeah, and I, I think if the, if the if the debate had been framed more in terms of maybe. Uh, IQ rather or sorry culture instead of race, but even if it is race, uh, I guess the way it was um, they went about doing it um, really was a setback. Um, well, and I
0: think it's a, I it's 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 purpose isn't. I mean, I don't know whether they thought they would shut him up, but the purpose I think in general is to act as a sort of shot across the bows for for other people. Like if you try to take on this very important topic you are going to be harassed and uh, harangued and and face all kinds of negative social consequences. And of course, people who go into psychology are often very sensitive people, which is quite what you want. Uh, and um, they're kind of I think warned off uh, topics that are sensitive. And that means that those topics still get discussed. They just get discussed without data and without expertise, which is a real shame.
1: Yeah. Well, in terms of um, the state of affairs, I was um, in Toronto last week, I uh, did a talk at the Idea City conference. Um, it was a it was a fun one to put together in, in the sense that I had only ten minutes to do it. And um, wait, wait, so I ten minutes to, sure to speak
0: I... or ten minutes to put it together?
1: Oh, oh, sorry, ten minutes to speak. Okay, good question. Gonna say, i
0: was going to say that's that that's a pretty that's a pretty tight deadline. I actually I do remember giving a speech to a grand total of thirty thousand people in person online, and I lost my notes about an hour beforehand. But uh, actually, turned out to be for the better. But sorry, go ahead.
1: Yeah. So anyway, um, yeah, because it was ten minutes, I put it in a very broad, general terms to make it accessible to the audience. Just because the main point I wanted to get to them was that if it's if you actually knew what was going on here, you would not want to fund it with your money. So then that was a point I <laughs> uh, I did get across, I think. But anyway, afterwards, a filmmaker uh, approached me, and she had told me that she'd had no problem in the past getting people like say drug dealers or other kinds of people from the criminal element to appear uh, before her camera to talk about, you know, whatever, for their for her documentary. But that um, she was having trouble getting professors to appear on camera. Um, so that if they did appear, they wanted to have their faces blacked out. And these are supposed to be the, yeah, our tenured professors. Wait, wait. So,
0: so the criminal drug dealers have no problem appearing on camera. But the taxpayer-funded academics wanted to be blacked out like they're Describing some extraordinary rendition to Turkey or something, oh, that's not good.
1: Yeah, no, it's strange the the amount of self censorship, and I can I can see why because you know you get the you get personally ostracized, uh, and it's amazing if you just look online on Twitter and the way uh, these professors behave, and nothing happens to them. It's just it's just appalling the way you know if you just look at their tweets or the way they act. I wouldn't want them. I wouldn't want to be a student in their classes if I had a different perspective. Yeah. so I think that's why and that that's considered and that's um that's considered acceptable and so you have these double standards on, how, um, on what's considered acceptable or not and so the, the ploy that's used now is oh yeah you have academic freedom however um, there there are going to be limits and so it's like it uh, and what matters is how you go about presenting your arguments now so you don't want to be harassing or discriminating so those are the the approaches that they're they're using now at the universities or with the decolonization. OK, we have to be careful, though, not to be racist towards our um, indigenous. And then you have the women's group. Oh, well, you can't be sexist. So you do have academic freedom and there's always the but and there are limits. I think that's the ploy that's being used now.
0: Well, I mean, the traditional mantra is you have free speech, but you don't have consequence free speech. But <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, when the consequences tend to be. Somewhat dangerous harassment when it tends to be an attempt to get you fired or destroyed. To me, I don't know. I mean, that seems abusive. And if the consequence to free speech is abuse and attack and, uh, you know, what the left generally does, try to destroy your reputation and and detach you from your source of income – I mean, that's like me saying to my wife, well, you're free to cook me a cold dinner, but I'm going to push you down the stairs if you do. You can cook me a cold dinner, but you can't cook me a consequence-free cold dinner. And it's like, but if the consequence is abuse,
1: that's not valid. That's not fair. That's not right. Oh, yeah. This just, uh, yeah, it's a way of justifying um, mob rule. And even in some of the everyday conversations, because I'd mentioned to one person, um, yeah, so that was, I think, I can't remember, I think it was Guelph. Yeah, where the um, the owner of the uh, cafe, uh, he was having trouble trying to get um, employees. And so he put out an ad in the paper that was, you know, making fun of the hipster stereotype. And so... I was highly uh, was offended far-
0: by that. I'm Sorry to interrupt you. I just wanted to mention that. I was highly offended by that because he required a man bun, which I am absolutely unable to produce. Uh, so <laughs> that's horrifying to me. <laughs> Such discrimination oh, yeah. against the Shinier set.
1: Yeah, or yeah, I guess... Uh, i guess well he said he accepted them so i guess we can't really argue that he was um discriminating against us who are uh oh I see i right. <laughs> but yeah but the Keith, i think he got fired because he used slave wanted and so uh the groups uh, he they said oh you minimize the impact of slavery in the past which i thought was ridiculous but then the co-worker thought no you know if you say something stupid like that you deserve to be fired and i just thought that was a bit odd because Actually, the number of applications increased. Everyone found it funny. So there was no – no one had even complained about it, as far as I could tell.
0: And this is what is so frustrating. And, you know, as a psychological expert, perhaps you could lead me through this thorny maze, Dr. Meta. But for me, when you drive a particular mindset out the front door, it's so often – turns into a weird acidic vapor and comes in through the back door. So this idea that a lot of leftists are very secular. I mean, I know a lot of them are socialists, if not outright communists and so on, hostile towards Christianity in particular. And then what they'll say is, you see, well, Christianity persecuted people for blasphemy, you see, even though that was actually quite rare in many cases. And the, the death count of uh, the Spanish Inquisition was relatively low compared to, I don't know, other religions around the world. But they say we see it's terrible that there would be these sects within within uh, Christianity and there would be uh, attacks upon people for blasphemy and so on and that's the worst thing in the world and then it's like you said something i'm now going to interpret as transphobic so i'm going to try and destroy your life and it's like i don't think that you've kind of gotten rid of the mindset of the religious mindset that you claim to be criticizing so much it's almost like you want to get rid of religious persecution as a competitor so that you have open field for your own persecutory uh, your own persecution complex
1: yeah, well, I find the that way of thinking very interesting because science is always about um, comparison. So, so, you know, you're always trying to think, what's the appropriate control group? What's the uh, appropriate comparison? Uh, but then there, there's absolutely no comparison. And it's used as if it's an absolute truth, just because we have some number greater than zero that uh, for an action that happened, you know, God knows how many years ago, right? So it's a bit, yeah, it's a strange. Um, strange way of thinking in terms of the mental gymnastics but I think it's all part of um, self-deception you know humans are very good at lying to themselves and um, yeah because I mean no one ever goes into a traffic jam in downtown Toronto and thinks oh you know I'm part of the problem right so it's always everyone else but me Uh, so yeah and I'm not sure how you counter that when when people don't want to accept that there's going to be fallacies in their own way of thinking. And, um, and that's, unfortunately, I think what's happened uh, within the academic circles, it's with people who see themselves as perfect and, um, yeah, and then are willing to criticize others.
0: Yeah, certainty is the most wonderful thing when it's earned through hard labor, self-criticism, empiricism, and reason. When it is indoctrinated, it's perhaps the most toxic and dangerous force in the universe. And you've talked about this that in surveys of students, I think this was in Canada, correct me if I've got this wrong, 50% thought it was okay to shout down speakers they disagreed with. And a fifth, 20%, thought that it was okay to use violence against speakers they found offensive. That is appalling. Now, I mean, I've given speeches under threat of, of bomb threats. I'm doing a speaking tour of Australia and New Zealand next month, and I'm sure that there'll be a certain amount of aggression involved in that. But how is it possible for people to justify the idea that speech, free speech is violence, but their violence is somehow free speech in a protest?
1: Yeah, I don't. Yeah, that's one I don't understand. And that's something certainly not anything I've ever uh, certainly not ever, anything I've ever taught. And it definitely goes against. um the whole idea of civil disobedience or what the original movements were about. If we look at, let's say, someone like uh, Martin Luther King or Gandhi, they always were about um, using uh, peaceful means to get their point across, trying to win over people to their perspective. And yeah, but this is totally not about that at all. It's, uh, it's all about um, putting your ideas by use of force, whatever whatever that may be. Sort of that, uh, that measure, you know, that expression, by any means necessary very militant. Well, that is an open confession that
0: uh, violence, uh, thuggery, if not outright uh, attacks, uh, by any means necessary, means that there's no practical or moral limit on the actions that will be deployed to achieve a particular goal, up to and including murder. And that, to me, is an astonishing thing to say publicly. And, you know, those of us who have some kind of public presence, we do have to be careful and we need to maintain respectful uh, tones and conversations. But Man, this, uh, I mean, you bring up Martin Luther King and, and Gandhi. I think there's pretty strong arguments to say that it was the relative civility of those they were opposing who made those strategies possible. Weren't a lot of Gandhis, uh, in, in Nazi Germany or communist Russia or, or communist China, uh, China or, or Cuba, because those people would just be shot and thrown into a shallow grave. So peaceful resistance works if you have a relatively civilized power structure in place. But boy, Uh, They're not looking to institute a very peaceful power structure. I mean, the the idea is this is what they're like when they're still relatively in the intellectual minority and when they still have to use more words than fists. But should they gain political power? Should they gain ascendancy? Uh, My fear, of course, and it's a very visceral and real fear, Dr. Mehta. My fear is that the left, the radical left, will do in the West what they have always done which is to escalate, to to start uh, mass murdering, to start throwing people in concentration camps, by any means necessary means there's no moral break on the pursuit of a particular goal. And uh, right now, in some ways, it's comical because they still lack the kind of institutional power that they've had in other places, but it becomes progressively less funny the more power they gain.
1: Oh, yeah, and I guess, um, we, I guess we're, we're seeing... Um... Uh, The way they uh, um, treat people, like, and this is coming from the the leaders, like just, uh, you know, I guess looking at the states, what happened with the Red Hen restaurant, you know, with um, with Miss Saunders, or, and then the reaction by Representative Waters, I think her name is. So, yeah, actually endorsing, yeah, that, that kind of treatment towards people who, just because they have a different perspective. And that, of course, is going to lead to Ah, uh, people who disagree to become all the more emboldened because they're, from their perspective, it's just self-defense. So, yeah, oh, and, so. and
0: the left will say that the right is violent, will continually harass and attack the right, and then when the right fights back, it's like, aha, you see, we told you all along in the classic self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, let's talk about something that you sent me that was very, very interesting. I thought the bullshit meter, I think, is the technical way of of putting it, yeah. which was your thesis. Step us through. The thought process behind that, the methodology and the conclusions, if you'd be so very kind.
1: Well, it's been a while. So, yeah, it was actually not uh, mine. That was my honor student who worked on that project. But it was a fun uh, project. Yeah, because there was a measure that came out in 2015. And it's called the Bullshit Receptivity Scale. And so it had a bunch of tweets by Deepak Chopra and then some control statements. The deepities,
0: I think Dawkins calls them, like they seem deep, you know, but when you think about them, they just kind of evaporate like candy floss in your mouth.
1: Yeah. So, so her project was just looking at um, predictors of, um, of who would give uh, high profoundness ratings to uh, BS statements. And uh, so, yeah, I haven't looked at her study in a a while, but it was what you'd expect in terms of, um, I think like the... Factors like the numeracy, being low on numeracy and uh, openness uh, to different perspectives. So those are, I guess, what we're trying to do is replicate and extend uh, prior work. But um, what I will talk about, though, is um, a little side project I put on that because that's something I'm actually going to present at a conference um, uh, next week. So um, when she was my honor student's working on that project, she thought it's strange if you're asking people if something's nonsensical, you and ask them how profound it is. Uh, Why don't we try a version of that study, just asking them straight up front, is this bullshit? Yes or no? Classify that as a yes bullshit statement or not bullshit statement. And so I thought, OK, if we're doing that, I came up with an idea. We'll just add uh, one or two other statements. So the one I put um, that was of interest then was because it's 2017, uh, because that was the justification that our prime minister used to... Um, to explain why he made his uh, cabinet gender, gender balanced. And I found it strange that that was the, you know, that was early uh, in his tenure, he had just started, and that no one from, um, seemed like almost no one from academia was uh, making any criticism of that. I thought for sure people were saying, oh, what a stupid comment that was, but nothing like that on campus at all. But I'd see it, let's say on online on online comments, but anywhere but the actual academy. So we fast forward to 2017, we're doing that project. I thought, okay, why don't we just add that item and we'll also ask uh, in the demographics about their uh, political affiliation. And so then when I analyze the data, uh, it was interesting. I didn't see anything from the profoundness ratings. So regardless of political orientation, everyone just gave them uh, low profoundness ratings. So they were typically in the range of, yeah, 1.25 to 1.86 on a scale of one to five. So nothing interesting there. Uh, but when I looked at is it BS, yes or no, uh, there, it did seem to vary then. There was, the percentages that classified it as BS seemed to vary as a, as a function then of their um, political affiliations. So the group that had that I classified as others, so those would be the ones who are apolitical, um, or said they might uh, you know, um, let's say liberal on some issues or not in others or don't follow politics, or anything that you couldn't classify. With them, it was uh, 67% that said it was BS. Uh, with people who were conservative or um, or even moderate, so like, yeah, sort of like your classic liberals, uh, they're uh, over, 80, over 80% uh, put that statement as BS. Uh, but people who classified themselves as progressives are sort of on the left side, only 55%. did. So they were at chance levels. I would love to actually try to go into that and see if there's a way to put people as far left or not. But I don't think if you ask people, are you an SJW on a quest there? Chances are they would probably get their shackles up.
0: <laughs> well, no, you you <laughs> simply something. mention ethnicity and IQ and see if you get punched in the head. Then I think that's your, because obviously you'd want to wear some kind of helmet and, and you know, be, yeah. be quick with your reflexes. But uh, yeah, that is something. That is something. And I also wonder if if you gave... These deepities that may be more common among the right. If the left would then be more skeptical, but the right would be more accepting of these things.
1: I think possibly um, I've come across some other papers, and uh, they show that both the left and the right are equally um, willing to unengage with viewpoints that are different from their own. So that seems to be just part of uh, human nature. For the longest time, psychologists had said, "Oh yeah, no, that's closed-mindedness is just a a feature of the of conservatives and." Course, these are liberals who are studying them. Uh, So now, yeah, the the more recent studies show that both are equally intolerant of views that are different from their own.
0: I mean, I think obviously I'm not going to disagree with the math behind that, but the one thing I would say about that is that if you're not on the left, then you are constantly exposed to leftist views just by turning on the television, picking up a newspaper. If you're in academia, I mean, uh, the news as a whole, uh, the the largely liberal sort of Hollywood. Propaganda machine that cranks out these social justice warrior movies from time to time, which seems like every time. And so, I think if you're not on the left, you're very much exposed, unless you live in a cabin in the woods, in which case, right. But you're very much exposed to leftist ideas and arguments on a continual basis if you engage with the world. I don't think that's quite as true if you're on the left because you can get much more of an echo chamber. You actually have to go and seek out non-leftist views, whereas if you're not on the left, the the leftist views kind of come at you like a tsunami.
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah, within the, yeah, with, I guess I never really noticed it until we had the change in government here in Canada, because uh, when we had the Harper years, um, it was easy then to speak out against what they were doing wrong. And it seemed like, right, everyone agrees with me, there must be something uh, right here. And you just think, oh, we're doing it because this is actually the, uh, because it is actually uh, objectively wrong. So it was only when there was a shift, and then we had a, a leftward government. Uh, that I noticed the discrepancy of what was happening in academia. Otherwise, before that, I was usually oblivious to it b- because of my own personal biases as well. And then you think, oh, if others are agreeing with you, then it must be some kind of an objective truth. And so now I look at the past very differently.
0: Oh, the uh, the mainstream media. I mean, this is <laughs> this is why I love the internet, because... The mainstream media's relationship to Justin Trudeau is sycophantic beyond what even Henry VIII's joker uh, or fool would have been able to achieve. Because, you know, a simple question is uh, ah. Um, um, Mr. Prime Minister, you you consider yourself feminist. How do you reconcile that with selling massive quantities of arms to the Saudi Arabian government, where in Saudi Arabia, a woman can't even get a medical procedure without the permission of her male guardian? So how do you reconcile being a feminist with selling arms to a repressive regime that uh, uh, crushes the aspirations of women on a regular basis? That's a fair question. I think, will it ever be asked by the mainstream media? I'm pretty much going to go with no.
1: Yeah. No, I have to agree with that then. It's an unfortunate, yeah, because it seems like uh, journalism has gone by the wayside. So it's not about seeking truth or just trying to uncover the stories. It's, um, yes, yeah, with whatever the government of the day happens to be. So if the government vote gets voted out and someone else comes in, who knows what's, uh, what they'll end up doing. It's hard to know for sure. Or if they'll just stick with trying to be a leftist point of view and um, hoping they can somehow get sales.
0: It's a strange, yeah, strange world we're in right now. I I, I think most mainstream journalism is just far left activism. And uh, if you ever want to find that out, become famous, say stuff that the left doesn't like and find out how they write about you and find out just how objective, uh, well, you know this as well as I do. When you read about yourself in the mainstream media, it's like, wow, that guy's terrible. Boy, I sure wouldn't have anything to do with that. Oh, wait, that's me. I'm not terrible. They're (laughs) just lying. And uh, it's a pretty constant thing. And so there's every, I invite everyone to conduct this personal experiment, become somewhat prominent, say things the left doesn't like, and then read about yourself and see what kind of context you're put into. And, uh, yeah, it can be, it can be pretty brutal. And, uh, it's like what happened to the anti-war movement after Obama got into office. Well, it just vanished because now their guys in, and so there's no reason to protest anymore. In other words, they don't care about the 100,000 bombs that Obama dropped into mostly innocent civilians in the Middle East. They don't care about those lives because they're guys in, and so it doesn't matter anymore. It's really terrible.
1: Yeah, it's just like I used to be a strong supporter of unions because I thought, oh, well, we're there to make sure people have good working conditions, etc., but it's only for the group, and as long as Uh, you pay your your member dues. So it's not like they really care about working conditions. It's just like, you know, what can they get uh, for themselves? So it's really been, it was a bit disheartening because those are values I've always had. And I thought the unionized way was to do it. But um, yeah, I've come to realize if we want to have that. It's about, yeah, lobbying government just to make sure we have one set of rules that actually is fair for all citizens. So we know exactly what you can expect. Uh, Let's say if you're an employer... Um, you know, what your responsibilities are, but also we can expect and same for employees and same for a corporation versus, uh, you know, a, a person. If we had those set of rules just there and we all follow them, our society would be functioning so much better than it is right now.
0: Well, we, this just came out. SCOTUS in the U.S. today has overturned 40 years of U.S. law, which basically forced uh, forced people to pay into union dues, whether they liked it or not, And of course, forced association is a violation of freedom of association. I have no problem with unions whatsoever because they're voluntary gatherings of people in a common interest. The two problems, by the by, just sort of my perspective, the two problems with unions is number one, when you have a government-granted monopoly, then unions become progressively more and more difficult because there isn't competition to blunt the demands of unions. And secondly, if uh, you're forced to join a union, then... You have no longer freedom of association and that becomes a problem as well. If they're voluntary groups like clubs, fantastic, more power to you, negotiate away. But if you have a monopoly or and or you're forced to join, then we have a problem in forced association. And this should be relatively simple to work through morally. But of course, again, there's a lot of financial incentive. The left loves unions because unions generally donate to the left and therefore because the left loves unions the leftist media loves unions and this you should see the weeping that's going on in the press today from the scotus decision no strikes a blow against workers strikes a blow against unions it's like actually no you're giving choice to workers and if the workers like the union they'll donate their money and if they don't they won't that's empowering the workers but of course you can't hear that narrative from the left
1: yeah well it's the same over here in canada so um that's what I said was that here, most of our faculty are unionized compared to at least the ones who are tenure, tenure track uh, compared to the U.S. Um, yeah, if, you, um, if you're you in a unionized workplace, you have to join the union. You can always say, I don't want to have a card, uh, but your dues are still going to be taken off your paycheck, whether you want them or not. Um, and with the um, Canadian system, if you're a tenured faculty and something happens to you, uh, the lawyer represents the association not you as the member. So it's not like, oh, okay, well, you've been paying your membership to do all these years. You're in a bind. You're going to need legal representation. So here's the one and we'll just give it to you or give you an equivalent of your choice or something like that. It's just like, this is the one who's going to be appointed to, to you, but that person's not there to represent you. It's whatever the association uh, is uh, prioritizing. So...
0: Uh, You don't really learn about the union until you need the union, and then you learn more than you ever want to know. So let's close off with this, if you don't mind. I'm always fascinated by the backstory. And you have talked a little bit about growing up in Canada, some of the pluses and minuses, some of the racism that you experienced. What was your journey to where you are now? I know that's a big topic and all of that, but... The, the transitions that lead people to be more uh, in the free-thinking camp, I always find fascinating. Maybe we can bottle it and and reproduce it somewhere around the world. But what was your big arc journey to where you are?
1: Well, I guess in the 70s, uh, I mean, I was born just one month before the October crisis. Uh, so in for those who aren't known, known about Canadian history, that was when a group of called the FLQ had kidnapped um, – a minister and some other people. There were mailboxes being bombed at the time, etc. And so in October, the uh, Prime Minister, Pierre Trudeau, at the time, then in, uh, instituted martial law. So it was a pretty ugly chapter in our Canadian history. There was a lot of tension between the English and French. And then finally, in 1980, there was a referendum and Quebecers uh, voted 60% to stay in Canada, you know, not to have a you know, not to Back a separatist uh, kind of approach, so after that was done, from my perspective, um, being a non-white, because what being yeah, because being a you know a, a, the child of immigrant uh, it was um, I was neither English nor French, so it was n- not a good uh, time to be in Quebec at that time. But since then, overall, my experiences as a Canadian were quite positive, and I was a, a leftist for the longest time. It was in 2015. When I was, uh, got together with a friend who I hadn't seen for years and where everything was about racism, uh, everything was somehow sexism. Even movies like uh, The Dark Knight Rises somehow was sexist and Islamophobic, et cetera. And I didn't know where any of that was coming from. Nothing seemed to make sense. And any arguments I gave would just be discounted. So it was just it constantly. Enough. Yeah, because I always thought the, you know, the friend who I thought was brilliant, I just thought all you're doing is. Setting up the this discussion so that you're always going to be the winner. That's not yeah. So it wasn't brilliant. So I just thought this is just bad reasoning, and so then that really start to make me question my beliefs. And I started to think actually, you know, for the past few years, chances are I might have been part of the problem of why there's all this uh, tension in this world. So thankfully, I never like docked a student's grades or anything like that. Never um, so because if I read a paper I disagreed with, I was just look at the structure, and I never commented on that because. I just thought there's nothing the course outlines saying the student needs to agree with me. So I might have had a harder time. I would have to put aside my biases, but I always made sure that student was marked fairly. But anyway, the 2015, I started questioning my beliefs. And then that's when I just decided I I know what my belief system is and what I'm fighting for, but I'm not going to be tied to any kind of an ideology. Hmm. Yeah, Hmm. and so that's – yeah, and then it was – and I didn't realize, I didn't think there was much going wrong. It was only when the whole Peterson affair started happening. And I thought, this is strange. Why is no one talking about this on campus? There's all these, um, you know, like the, the Yale, uh, the, you know, the events that happened at Yale. And uh, there's all these events. And It just seems strange. Why isn't this something that we're actually discussing on campus? And so as I started to ask the questions, eventually, the long story short is it just all blew up in my face in ways that I hadn't <laughs> anticipated Okay, so
0: I don't want that long story to be too short, if you don't mind, because that, that is wh- – where did you go for your sources? And was there anything in particular where you had that moment where the ice castle comes crashing down, so to speak?
1: Well, it's um, well on my YouTube channel. So I post – yeah, if anyone wants to. There's only a couple talks there thus far. Uh, yeah, if they type in Rick Meta Free Speech, because if they t- I think if they just type in Rick Meta, they'll probably get a lot of Bollywood. So, yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> like which it- which is fine too. But this one is where the intellectual content is.
1: Yeah, well, i invite people actually watch for themselves because the first hour where it's just the discussion that was fine, but then afterwards during the question and answer period, I'd never seen anything like that there was just these long-winded diatribes and I was like is there a question in there and it just seemed strange that the very people like from let's say someone from the women's group was the one complaining about power dynamics and nothing seemed to make sense and so then uh, when I was trying to put together my speech in September 2017 it was from that sense of what is going on there seems to be these disconnects and so yeah um and yeah, so I think where things really went off the rails was when I put out the tweet in January to the um, opposition, opposition leader just saying, you know, wait a minute, you've just, you say you're in favor of free speech in terms of supporting Lindsay Shepard, but then you've just, um, you've just fired, you know, you just kicked someone out of your Senate caucus all because she posted uh, letters onto her website Uh, are you saying then that the indigenous are a protected class that can't be criticized? If that's the case, that's not good for race relations. And so then that led to a a Twitter mobbing, a a petition to have me fired countered by a counter petition to have me keep me here. Uh, Yeah. And once it was, yeah, once it was in the news, that's when it led to, yeah. um, Yeah. Then a lot happening behind the scenes. And then the other item that hit the news was, um, that the university was investigating me for uh, harassment and discrimination based yeah based on yeah based on yeah social media emails i sent on campus um, um yeah uh behavior in the classroom but if anyone listens to the audio recordings there's nothing to that
0: oh and didn't they say that you should stop putting these recordings out
1: uh yep that that, yeah that that as well so it's it's a bit don't you dare
0: defend your teaching in public that's just wrong how are we supposed to have some
1: secret inquisitional star chamber if you keep publishing facts yeah so the interesting then too is that yeah what the advice the uh, union gives then is to just if the the strategy is always yeah uh comply now grieve later because the way employment law works is that if the university asks you to do something and you don't you're basically not doing what your boss is telling you to do and that could be insubordination so it becomes a bit of a tricky line then there on how to how do you defend yourself then when they can then try to use employment law against you and this strategy then is just oh yeah well just comply and then grieve it and then it just takes forever and then you're forever grieving um well and there there's a long time there where you can't talk about what you believe to be true
0: you can't advocate positions that you find to be verified and reasonable while you're going through the grieving process. So how do you look yourself in the mirror going to work saying, well, I can't really talk about this and I can't really talk about that, but maybe in a couple of years I can. It's like, Ooh, that's rough.
1: Yeah. So yeah. So I won't go into too much details right now, but basically sort of, yeah, the things are a bit of a, the standstill. We'll just see where, what proceeds from here. So for now I'm just kind of keeping my, um, Cards close to the chest, and just um, yeah, because sometimes it's, you can do. Sometimes the timing of speech matters more too than anything else. So, so no, I'm, I'm fine
0: just- with that. Certainly, uh, don't don't give away your your playbook. I'm I'm fine with that. And it is funny because the cause and effect seems somewhat random. So you you put out a, a very reasonable tweet, in my view, and then the airstrike of social justice rage descends upon you and. I don't think, and tell me if I'm wrong, I don't think you said, aha, I know exactly what kind of reaction this is going to get, and I know exactly how this is going to play out. It was like, no, this is just a rebuttal to somebody where it seems like they're being kind of hypocritical on a particular topic. It happens all the time. You know, we all need to be brought up to our standards and reminded of of the higher path and so on. And so it does seem a little bit random to the point where it's like, Well, someone just happened to see it, they happened to spread it, it happened to catch a wave, and then your life is turned upside down. And it is really hard to predict ahead of time what is going to upset people. And I think that randomness is part of the whole game, which is, well, we just want you to be afraid to talk about anything because it's kind of random what gets you blowback and what doesn't. So just shut up as a whole and, and your life will be easier. And it's like tempting, though, that may be all of the freedoms that we inherited came from people who didn't shut up when threatened. And it seems a bit of a betrayal of that legacy to do the same.
1: Yeah, no, it's, um, yeah, I definitely agree. I found it interesting because in December, I was hoping to stimulate discussion or stimulate um, yeah a blowback by using tweets like, you know, uh, tweeting out to the university, let's just dish the decolonization initiatives if you really want to say that you're against racism uh, with a hashtag, it's okay to be white, thinking that might be something that would stirred the pot but none of those ones did or when i let's say tweeted to the farmer's market hey look this is what far lesser are, are saying that you know the farmer's markets are are symbols of white supremacy what do you have to say about that and sending that to the university and to our farm, local farmer's market but that didn't seem to stimulate anything so it was like the place i least expected to have um coverage that's where it came from What if, what is the decolonization narrative i'm
0: a little out of well, the loop on that
1: well, it's basically, it's also known as the indigenization of the institution. So it's not just, let's say, let's have um, an indigenous perspective so we could see, let's say, they, their side of history or maybe their approach to psychology is yet another. It's about, in English, let's, let's say, replace uh, the works of Shakespeare by, uh, you know, the indigenous way of knowing whatever that happens to be. So it's, yeah, it's like, let, let's replace curriculum with something else. Uh, But it's only the activist approach. It's not, uh, you know, you don't hear much, let's say, about the Indigenous who are working in the oil fields. Like that, yeah, it's only the ones that are in the stereotype of the ones who just lived um, peacefully with nature.
0: Yes, well, I mean, the Indigenous, perhaps we can talk about that another time, but uh, having spent some time working up north and spent some time with Indigenous populations and on reservations, boy, what Canada's doing is not working in the most horrifying kinds of ways. So perhaps we can talk about that another time. But having compassion for the indigenous population is not the same as saying everything that exists must continue to exist and all the policies in place must be expanded because man, is it rough for a lot of people, particularly the children uh, in these uh, communities. It is just horrifying. And anybody who thinks that a continuation of the status quo is anything other than cruel uh, is, I think, somebody who needs to go and spend some time in these communities a little bit more uh, viscerally
1: yeah because i mean some of the problems like access to drinking water i mean that should just be something that's part of what is you know if you're in canada those are just things that we should be able to just take as a given uh i think that you can access it but uh yeah the way they're going about doing it um doesn't help anyone i think um it's doing quite the opposite because um at a lot of the universities they want to have you know like an office for the indigenous so if you're going to have anything to, to do with the indigenous you need to go through an office that sounds a lot like communist russia <laughs> um yeah and then starting off uh, events with the you know the we acknowledge that we're on this unceded territory or, we're, or or sometimes it seems strange looking at universities and if you look at their website and say you know proudly on this uh, unseated ancestral land. So it's like, what does, does that mean? Are you proud to be a colonialist? Or what does this mean? I don't really understand that. So to me, to me it just seems like virtue signaling. I don't see how it benefits anyone because for non-Indigenous, I think it's just <laughs> instilling feelings of guilt when they had nothing to do with the past. And then for the Indigenous, I imagine many of them just see it as virtue signaling. So I don't see how it's in any way productive, but they put it just because activists want it and the fact that you hear the same statement across the different places even in the theater or at a symphony it does seem like it does give the appearance then of it being a compelled speech as opposed to something that's genuine that they actually wanted to say because this was this is something very recent
0: well and it is such a squandered opportunity to me i mean we have this policy in the west of multiculturalism of diversity of bringing every ethnic and and uh, cultural group in close proximity Now, that's a challenge no matter which way you cut it. That's very much against how societies evolve, which was generally kind of win-lose combat and so on among ethnicities. But this is the policy that's underway, and we need to get behind everything that's going to make that policy work as well as humanly possible. Now saying, well, this is cultural appropriation and this is racism and this is uh, insensitivity to other cultures and this is colonialism. And this is, I mean, this is just a way of setting everyone against each other. So bring all these groups together and then see if you can foment as much hostility and hatred between them as humanly possible. And in general, that means towards whites. Boy, talk about having a policy and then sabotaging any chance for it to succeed. I think that's The great danger of what's going on is that if we're going to find ways to live together, and it is my hope, hope, hope that we can, and I think we can, but if we've got all these people, Iago-like, whispering all of these divisiveness and hostilities into everyone's ears, then bringing all these groups together and fomenting hostility between them is a way of disintegrating a country rather than gaining the oft-touted values of diversity.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. And I think that approach ultimately leads to a population that can be easily controlled. Because if you're all against each other, <laughs> right. then it's it's easy to see miss what's happening in the background. So I think that is the uh, the big fear, and I think much, it all has to do with what Orwell is talking about way back in the 1940s.
0: Well, I really really appreciate your time, and I wish you the very best of luck. I'll sort of keep track on uh, what's going on in um, your struggle with. Free speech and feel free to to use uh, my platform as a resource to get the word out there when that's appropriate. Uh, I just wanted to remind people, of course, we'll put links to your channel below and to uh, your great speeches, which, you know, we're hoping to get some more views. Really, really well done. And remember to go to twitter.com slash Rick R. Meta. That's Rick R. M. E. H. Don't forget the H. M. E. H. TA, I really, really appreciate your time. And I really, really appreciate the work that you're doing. I mean, for people who are not in academia or haven't heard this much about the struggle, it's kind of easy to, to get in line to keep your head down and so on. And the courage that you're displaying in speaking out against political correctness and challenging some of the hypersensitivity of some highly volatile people, I think is very admirable. And I really, really
1: appreciate the work that you're doing. Okay, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Take care. Yeah, All the best.